the fundamental thing that technology does is not progress in a certain direction. The fundamental thing that technology does is to make our world weirder and different. Technology weirds the world. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Noah Smith, a Renaissance man, blogger, and commentator. Noah's popular blog, No Opinion, focuses on economics, technology, and current events. He was previously a columnist for Bloomberg and an assistant professor of behavioral finance at Stony Brook University. Our wide-ranging conversation covers digital technology, economics, and energy. We discuss Noah's framework for thinking about technology digital technology adoption and its implications for economic activity, measures of technological advancement, opportunities and challenges for solar and nuclear energy, and the Noah Smith production function. Welcome, Noah. We are so happy to have you here today. We would love to start the discussion with your personal relationship with technology. What is your personal relationship with technology? Well, technology has completely destroyed my life because I spend all my time on social media. No, I, um, <laughs> you know, I, I've always been very fascinated, inherently interested with technology. I've always been a big sci-fi fan. I've always followed in technological and scientific developments pretty closely. So I've always kind of had that interest there. My job didn't end up taking me in the technology direction at all. I was a physics major as an undergrad, but then I just went away from the tech side of things when I went to economics and then briefly was a professor and then became a blogger. So now I'm a professional blogger and technology is only peripheral to that. I try to write and think about it and integrate that into how I think about the economics of the world and all that stuff. Kind of getting into more of the meta discussion, kind of the high level discussion of technology and software. Are there any instances in the history of technology that you find really fascinating and why in particular would that instance be so fascinating to you? Oh, there's tons. I think one interesting moment in the history of technology, maybe the most interesting moment ever, is actually World War II because we just had a burst of kind of spontaneous private sector innovation during the 1930s. And then along comes the 1940s. And suddenly the imperative of the world completely changes from having a job, putting food on the table, having fun, making money, getting rich and all that normal stuff to this apocalyptic clash of nations. And it was completely different. And what's interesting is that sort of for the first time, government said, all right, we are going to actually push technology forward over the course of this war in order to win it. That was really the first time that it ever happened. I think you can definitely find examples of wartime innovation from the Romans inventing the Corvus to board Carthaginian ships in the First Punic War to Winston Churchill getting together an engineering team who designed the tank in World War I. What you don't see are the systematic effect, systematic attempts by government to push forward the technological frontier in the middle of wartime. That was new. We created the Office of Scientific Research and Development, Vannevar Bush, things that eventually became the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, and DARPA. It was a big game changer. We invented a lot of really key technologies, and you can see the echoes of those technologies in 
all the stuff that people are interested in today from AI to anything, any IT stuff, you can really see the shadow of World War II because it turned out that communications and sensing and things like that, you know, everyone talks about the Manhattan Project, the nuclear bomb. Of course, that was important. That was, we, we don't argue with that. And of course, people know about rockets, which we started to experiment with in World War II. But I think really sensing and communications were the key technologies. You had radar, you had just massive improvements in communications and in computing, right? We didn't have true computers at, at that time, Turing Complete, I guess, but we had some sort of calculating machines and there were just massive improvements. And of course, Turing was thinking about this at the same time and the British government was employing him. They were doing code breaking and they were doing various analyses of things. And that drove the IT boom, I think. And it's one reason the IT boom was localized to California because a lot of those, you know, a lot of that government support went to companies out in California that ended up becoming important to the Silicon Valley boom, the first Silicon Valley boom. And so it's hard to say what direction technology would have gone in if not for that. Obviously, there was some information technology stuff going on before the war. Telegraphy was obviously important. But the question is, would technology have developed in such an IT-focused direction, if not for the imperatives of World War II, of knowing where all these ships and planes and armies are and keeping in touch with them and doing all this stuff, if not for that imperative? And so, of course, you know, Neil Stevenson wrote the historical fiction novel, Cryptonomicon, which is all about this issue and this idea and this question. And that just has endlessly fascinated me about that because it was really government directed in a way. The 30s were a very innovative decade, but if you look at that, a lot of it was in engines and chemicals. It was in big physical technology. And the question is, would we have kept trying in that direction more and been late to IT had World War II not happened? So you think that as a civilization, we need some, some kind of existential incentive like a World War II to make step function improvements in technology? I don't know that we need it. And I don't think we'll ever know if we need it. But I think that it's interesting that it happened that way. And it is also interesting. I, I think the Cold War really pushed that forward much more. Semiconductor technology and, and all kinds of IT stuff. And even the internet was important to the Cold War. And so the Cold War in that sense, in terms of technology policy, was really just an extension of World War II. So I don't actually know whether we need some sort of existential thing. I don't think we'll ever know. But I think that what it does show is that if the government tries really hard and has the state capacity to marshal a whole bunch of resources toward a goal, it can shift the direction of technological improvement and in some ways accelerate it, at least in certain directions. And I think that's an important lesson because right now, again, we are facing cases where we think this is important. Obviously, climate change, which people have been talking about as a driver of kind of government technology policy for a long time but also the kind of emerging Cold War II with China and Russia. I don't know if it's existential, but it is going to be a big sort of problem that everyone, no one thinks the private sector is going to solve those problems on its own. Everyone thinks the government is going to need to step in. That's everyone except, I don't know, Fox News hosts or whatever. But like <laughs> everyone realizes it's government time. The private sector is obviously going to be hugely important, but government is going to be doing a lot. And the question is, how do we get those step functions? How do we replicate what we did in World War II and the Cold War? And I think that that's on a lot of people's minds now. It's certainly on my mind. And uh, extending that, like, what do you think is a good framework to think about digital technologies, information technology? Well, I don't know. A good framework to think about it. I'm not sure that I can add much to the conventional wisdom of there's been waves. Each wave is built on the last, been enabled by the last. We couldn't have had the internet if not for computers. We couldn't have had smartphones and social media if not for the internet. We couldn't have had AI if not for the internet and the data it generated and probably smartphones and social media too, but we probably could have had AI without those. But I think that certainly computing and the internet were absolutely essential to the development of AI as we now know it. And the whole AI boom now stands on the shoulders of those earlier booms. So I think that we're seeing just this, I, I like to liken it to veins of ore. You know, we're mining these veins of ore. I didn't come up with that metaphor. It's something called Klondike spaces in some old psychologist thing that my dad told me about when I was a little kid. But I think that what's interesting is that veins of ore form in pseudo-Brownian motion, so you can connect the veins back and 
similarly technology, we were like, oh, now we can use computers. Ha, now we can do Microsoft Excel. Yay. And then now we're like, okay, well, what if we wire the computers together and made an internet? And then cool, we discovered that. And then we're like, okay, what if we take all this data and we feed into a giant regression? Wow, AI, the computer can talk now. So I think we just keep iterating and probing and finding these discoveries. It's a tech tree, right? Like when you played video games when you're a kid, or maybe still, but at least when I was a kid, I played video games where you had to research this tech and that tech to get this other tech, right? There was a tech tree, and I think that's really how it really works. And in fact, I know some researchers now are trying to actually build the tech tree as a, a research kind of artifact. So in terms of IT, I think that there's obviously some other things that we can think of that we could at some point make. We could make brain computer interfaces. I'm pretty excited about that. They could do everything from artificial telepathy to changing our moods and motivations to whatever you want. And then we could do VR. Obviously, people have been excited about VR. And the, the ultimate endpoint of VR is personality upload. Still sci-fi, way, 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 way off. But someone's going to be working on that. And as for what AI is going to open in terms of innovation, both in the IT space and, of course, beyond the IT space and things like biology and complex domains that a single human mind is not necessarily equipped to handle... I think we're going to see a lot there. So I think we're still going. We're like, we're still going with scientific development. And I'm not, I don't believe the naysayers. I don't believe the Robert Gordons. I do believe that scientific projects and scientific progress in specific domains have been getting more expensive over time. But I don't believe that we're running out of those veins of ore. I think there's a lot more still to understand and master about this world. And so I think that the recent AI boom has only highlighted that fact. You're much more in the camp of sort of Matt Ridley. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read his books, but I know of him and his ideas. But yeah, basically, Ramez Nam. Do you know Ramez? Yeah. Yeah. He's someone that he's, he, I think he's probably my favorite futurist. I think he, at some point of time, he was in Microsoft. He was. I think he was head of the team that made Outlook Express. Yeah. So if you've ever been frustrated by that product, you can blame Ramez. It's a cash cop on Microsoft, so I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it is a, indeed a cash cow. Ramez was, he doesn't just think about IT stuff. He wrote a very visionary series of books called the Nexus books about, oh, which is science fiction, about brain-computer interface with nanotech. He was one of the very first people to recognize that solar power appeared to be following a Moore's law in terms of cost. And then lithium-ion batteries appeared to be following a Moore's law in terms of cost. Yeah, he was one of the first people to recognize that and to call that. And now I think that's just absolutely a revolution. So I think Ramez has really been on top of the game here. And I'm excited to see what he thinks about AI, because AI seems like one of those fields where no one knows what's going on. There are no real experts. It's good to try getting a lot of inputs from people like that, even if they're not necessarily on the front lines, coding the models themselves. How do you think about the relationship between technology and change? Technology and change? You mean social change? as you may define it. I've jokingly called myself a technological determinist because I've always felt this <laughs> that, well, um, yeah, no, I've, I, I am not really a technological determinist because I think there's all kinds of feedback effects and there's all kinds of stuff going on out there. It's very complex. I've always thought that a lot of cultural change is downstream of technological change. And a classic example of this is we used to have a very gendered division of labor Women in general would stay home and do things like do laundry and dishes and blah, blah, blah. Whereas men would go to the factory and like put pieces of metal together. And, and they were both drudgy, boring work. But then we got things like, you know, refrigerators and ovens and microwaves and washing machines and dryers and dishwashers and vacuum cleaners. And we got all these household appliances. And suddenly you, it didn't make economic sense to have one person doing all the, the housework. And at the same time, work in the market transitioned toward away from putting pieces of metal together, at least in the United States, toward doing things with your mind, which is a much more or level playing field between the genders. And I think that you can see gender equality in some ways downstream of technological change, not that people didn't always want gender inequality and not to say that it didn't require social movements to make it happen, but it was the fact that we, it didn't make economic sense to have a gender division of labor anymore really enabled, I think, that social and cultural change. I could make many more examples. I think that we've seen how social media has changed by making public intellectual life more participatory, much as the printing press did in the, I don't know, 1600s, 1700s, 
that caused chaos. And I think that social media has caused chaos as well. Because when you have a bunch of people who didn't have a voice before suddenly getting a voice and suddenly getting heard, they just crash into this previously cosseted intellectual scene. The eternal September happens. Back in the days of Usenet, every September, AOL would do this promotion where it gave away free internet access CDs that only worked for a month. And suddenly every September, people in Usenet would say, oh my God, where did all these crazy people come from? Because they were just random people who got the internet for a month, didn't know what they were doing, just logged on and started talking randomly. Then they'd go away as their free month ran out. But then as internet access got cheaper, at some point they never went away. And it was called the eternal September event. And the normies flooded the previously elite internet spaces. Yeah, that's funny. Well, Noah, I mean, how about... How about if we would sort of invert this question in some sense, you know, are there any examples you would highlight where technology tends to lead to sort of stasis outcomes like that? Technology emerges and then there's sort of no change simply because maybe it led to monopoly or so forth. Just how would you kind of respond to the inversion of that question? That's an interesting question. Neil Steven, the aforementioned Neil Stevenson has suggested, as have a few other people, that the internet squelches human creativity by making everyone think that their ideas have been done before. That when you're working on something in 1985, if you're working on some new idea, you wouldn't know who else was working on it and you'd imagine that you were the only person doing it. Now you can Google around and see that there's 10 other people doing it so you don't do it because you think you've been scooped. Whereas humanity would actually benefit from 10 people around the world trying to invent the same thing at the same time because they'd take it in different directions. And that would lead to creativity. So the idea is if people don't try stuff because they think it's been done already, then maybe you could have a decrease in creativity. Obviously, the most most sort of dumbass obvious way that technology could reduce productivity is just by making everyone goof off all the time. I think that I once calculated that if you, if starting in the year 2005, people spent one minute per day per year more goofing off at work on social media and their phones, that could explain the entire productivity slowdown. What's actually interesting about this is that will lead to a measured productivity slowdown because we're counting those hours as work. But right. it won't necess- it won't lead to a real productivity slowdown. In fact, it could lead to a real productivity increase. So maybe I'm cheating on your question here. But it could lead to a real productivity increase because you're when you're taking those longer bathroom breaks, you're doing more work during your actual time on task. And so that, so productivity is actually increasing in that sense. It's hard to tell because these things are hard to measure. But then in terms of technology decreasing productivity, you could also, I mean, another possibility is war, right? If you get blown up, you're not going to have technological progress. And I think that if you look at Germany's technological progress before the world wars versus after the world wars, it's like night and day. Germany was the scientifically and technologically ascendant nation of earth in the last decades of the 1800s and the first decade of the 1900s. For 30 years, or maybe 40 years, Germany was pushing the boundaries of everything, from physics to chemistry to engineering, mathematics, everything was Germany. If you wanted to be a scientist, you had to learn the language German, no matter where you were. Yeah, it was just really the center of progress. And then after the World Wars, There was still German science and there was still some pretty good German science out there, but I would think no one would say that Germany was the forefront of global technology after the world wars. It was obviously the United States to a lesser extent, Japan, and then a fewer smaller countries adding in there, but not Germany. That's absolutely a generalized statement. You can isolate pockets of progress in Germany, but really the world wars damaged Germany immensely. And I think that in some ways, their society never recovered to what it was. Obviously, in GDP, they more than recovered and are rich now. But in terms of sort of dynamism and the clustering of minds in Germany, I think they never recovered from that war. Yeah, no, some interesting nuggets here. No, for sure. How does technology impact morality and institutions? I feel like you're such a great guy to to speak to that. What's your instinctual response? Well, I don't know. I think that it could just be a whole lot of different ways. I think that when people talk about these things, people become overconfident very quickly and start bullshitting. And I can become overconfident very quickly and start bullshitting if you like, if that's entertaining for you. Keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it real. I don't know. 
I don't know what determines morality. I mean, so I can look at small examples, right? So since 2018, the number of sexual harassment complaints in America has fallen absolutely dramatically in the workplace. And one possible reason for that, of course, is that people are reporting less, more incidents are going unreported. But I think that we can agree that the opposite is probably true because people are now more sensitive to sexual harassment complaints since the Me Too movement, more likely to report them. So the fact that those complaints have gone way down indicates that the Me Too movement had some success. Before the Me Too movement, I would hear about all kinds of instances of sexual harassment and realize that there was just nothing to be done about that. You could report people, but who's going to do anything? Who's going to make anyone do anything? The harassers, who were always relatively few in number at any company, but who were probably going to be at least one or two at any company he went to, the harassers knew what they could get away with. They knew what would get them sued and what would be provable, usually, right? Usually they knew. And they could get away with it. And then Twitter and, to a lesser extent, all of social media changed those parameters suddenly and made them able to get away with much less. So many were caught, but many who weren't caught, I think most were not caught, but most simply moderated themselves and stopped doing what they had been doing. And morals that were paid lip service to before that movement, before that technological change, now uh, could be enforced and they could be enforced by the public. You know, the public would hear about some guy like Don Lemon, I don't know, who was a sexual harasser and then just going to go after him, go after the company and then embarrass them until they fired the person. And so we saw many, many, especially in the media industry, many, many top people in the media industry go down for this. And I don't know whether or not that was because it was worse in the media industry or the media industry is more sub subject to like sort of public outrages or I don't know why, but it definitely happened more there. But I think you can see it across the board. You can see it in tech companies. You can see it everywhere. I don't know, VC firms. I really think that's one identifiable place in which technology didn't necessarily change what we think is right, but changed, changed what we are able to enforce in terms of morality. Do you believe cloud nations? Think familiar with that idea. Is that like Bology's network states? Right, exactly. Okay. I've known Bology for 20 years now, and I've we've never really seen eye to eye about a lot of this stuff. I kind of think Bology is a little out to lunch on a lot of stuff. But I think that there are elements of that. So a diaspora is a little bit of a network state, right? Like Jewish diaspora has been, you functioned sort of as a network state, not that there were the actual functions of the state carried out, but that people could exchange knowledge, information, et cetera. And knowledge, information are public goods. Or people could donate to international stuff to help each other. And so there was some of that. You've seen the Chinese and Indian diaspora has been be very important to the development of China and India because they go work overseas, learn technologies and business practices, and then bring them back. The, uh, the so-called sea turtle phenomenon. They'll invest in their home country or ancestral country, as it may be. And just or just communicate, provide jobs. So you can see diasporas functioning a little bit as network states. There's a great book, and I wish I could remember the name right now, by Annalise Xenian, The New Argonauts. That's it. The New Argonauts, which is all about these diasporas, especially in terms of the tech industry in Silicon Valley. Obviously, the internet has enabled that process to supercharge in some ways, but I think we're only beginning to see where that could go. But in terms of Network states in the Balagian sense, really taking over the provision of local public goods, I think that doesn't make any sense because they're not locally organized. You know, most public goods are like a road network. Well, network states are based on the internet, not the roads. So they're not going to build the roads, right? They're not going to build bridges and parks. They're not going to operate schools. I mean, you can have, you do have some sort of like international networks of schools. You have things like Chinese school or Hebrew school that some kids will go to. They've never been that important. And schools are a very local phenomenon. And so I think that network states in the full Balajian sense are not going to happen. But we will see, you know, the internet naturally pushes us toward collaborations, at least in narrow senses, that go beyond what was possible before and allow what I would call vertical identifications, vertical communities to develop in addition to the kind of horizontal geographical based communities that we've always had. Shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about your lens on how technology tends to, or digital technology in particular, tends to 
reshape or alter economic activity? Are there any sort of specific observations you would like to share? I think that's a great question because usually we're very used to this thing where technology increases productivity, like measured productivity and measured whatever, and also creates marketable products that we can sell, definite products like here, buy a TV, here, buy a car. That's the standard idea. A lot of economic notions, which were all made in the wake of World War II, were set up to measure that. You know, that's what they're set up to measure. But I think that in, in the age of IT progress, we've seen ways that technology changed our lives, which were important, that were not measured. And sometimes this was for the better in terms of unmeasured consumer surplus, free internet services. You spend all day looking at these free internet services. How do you measure the value of that? Well, people have tried. It doesn't explain the whole productivity slowdown, only a modest fraction of it, maybe, but it definitely is something that happened economically. And technology also shifts economics. So like we're talking about, if technology makes leisure more fun, you want to take those long bathroom breaks, right? Then that changes the way our trade-off between labor and leisure. And the value of leisure was never measured in GDP. It was set up specifically to never measure leisure. It only measures the value of things that are sold and no one sells leisure. So those are some ways that things could change. The shape of production can change as well. Technology can enable network effects that lead to natural monopolies. So you can have, if network effects weren't important, everyone would have left Twitter years ago. Not even when Musk showed up, they would have left before that. The only reason people are on Twitter is because other people are on Twitter and they have all these follower networks built up and it's this existing network and you can't just replicate the value of that existing network elsewhere. So that's a network effect, but you could also see some network effects in certain kinds of like marketing and supply chain activities, maybe that increase the geographical reach of monopoly companies. So you, instead of mom and pop sort of businesses everywhere, or even just regional or even national chains, you just have Walmart everywhere or something because Walmart can very easily use the internet to create these supplier networks. So it's not clear how much of that is happening network industries and in network effects in non IT industries, but I think that there's certainly the potential for technology to drive monopolization. Mm -hmm. What are some attributes or characteristics of industries that are more or less prone to changing with respect to technology? Changing with respect to technology, that's really, really hard to predict, right? Because if you look at travel agents, the airplane came and travel agents just had a gigantic boom because it was hard expensive, difficult to book airfare, but now everyone wanted to travel because it's cheaper. So you had a ton of travel agents, just massive boom from sort of wide body aircraft technology. Then the internet came and travel agents started to die because really you could plan your own trips on the internet. So there were different kinds of technology that had very different effects, causing a boom and then a bust on the exact same industry. And so it's difficult to say because I think that the type of technology matters a lot. And it's very difficult to say it. Look, if I could say how technology would change various industries, I'd just pick a bunch of stocks and get really rich. You're asking me to like <laughs> pick stocks basically. And so it's certainly a nuanced question for yeah, sure. It's a, I, it's a really hard question to answer, yes. even in nuanced form. Like it's, <laughs> that's why we're <laughs> asking you the question. <laughs> <laughs> we can, I mean, we can say in retrospect, what industries were reshaped by technology, but I think in Predicting the future, that's a job for some of the smartest investors on the planet in some way. You know, obviously AI is going to supercharge NVIDIA because they make the chips for AI. But then maybe tomorrow ASICs will just completely destroy GPUs as the AI chip. And then who's making ASICs? I guess Microsoft, Google, Apple, I think is making ASICs. I don't remember, even remember who's making ASICs. Sachin, do you remember? I think it's Apple and Microsoft and Google. Yeah, I think so. And so those guys could just come roaring back and NVIDIA could go back to being like, what, NVIDIA? Who's that, Bert? Or GPUs could still be the thing and NVIDIA could just win the future. And it's, it's really hard to say, right? Or like TSMC's foundry business, like how viable really is that? There's some indications that leading edge chip fabrication is going to become much, 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 much harder, especially because where do you go after EUV? You've already built the Earth's smoothest mirror, right? We have a mirror the size of Germany and the biggest imperfection is a centimeter. And then you have the world's most powerful laser. It can outshine the sun. And then we built those things just to make machines for semiconductors. Where do we go from there? Where, where do we go next? What do we do? And so like, obviously they're working on a slightly better version of EV, but it's not clear that those 
that's going to keep happening at the same. Moore's law might be over as well, just because of quantum effects, right? I don't know if quantum computing can come in and take over or if new 3D architectures will act, how long they'll be able to like keep ahead of things. Moore's law was never a law of the universe. It was always just Intel spending lots of money, right? And so now Intel spent money on something that failed, right? They spent money on making better chips with what? Interferometry, I guess. And that didn't work. They're like, oh, we can get it right. We won't have high defects. And it's like, nope, you will. And that kind of screwed Intel as a company, at least for a while. Let's see if they can pull off a, a Microsoftian revival here. But really, Intel fell behind on Moore's Law. So then it was necessary for TSMC to drive ahead Moore's Law, right? But who's buying the chips? Intel was always making the chips because Intel controls the basic architectures that make chips usable in server farms. Even if Intel falls behind a little bit, they'll still be making the CPUs for the server farms that run your cloud stuff. Maybe not for China, I guess. But the point is, as the world shifts away from CPUs, from just like high-performance CPUs toward low-power chips for your phone and GPUs and ASICs and God knows what, right? As that shift happens, will we need to drive forward Moore's Law? For phone chips, you definitely don't, right? You want low heat. You don't want your phone to overheat. That's more important than fitting more transistors on a chip. Even now, we're measuring Moore's Law. We've had to fudge Moore's Law so that we keep slightly changing the metric as transistors on a chip becomes less of a useful metric. I don't know what's going to happen with that. And I've read a billion articles about it, but none of them know what's going to happen either. Or will we get quantum computing and then just like we get God computer and we transform the universe into AI computronium. So the only thing I know is that quantum computers look damn cool. But other than that, I can't really tell you what's going to happen. They look the, so cool. Yeah, the applicability will change, definitely. Right. I think human imagination is something which is un, unmatched. So we'll unbounded. see. Unbounded. So the infinite see. resource. Yeah. What is the best model for countries and nation states to harness the potential of digital technologies? Well, I would say that depends on the nation state because clustering effects are real. And if you are in Turkey, Turkey has is very important in mechanical engineering and autos and stuff like that, it getting more important in auto. So I'd focus on building an auto industry in Turkey. If you are in Malaysia, Malaysia has didn't do well in autos. It did pretty well in electronics. So I would focus on becoming a competitor to Taiwan and Korea and China, of course, in semiconductors. That's sort of probably Malaysia's destiny. And then they're probably going to start investing in Indonesia and Vietnam to do some of these things. But actually, I'm very bullish on Indonesia because I think when Malaysia and Singapore, Singapore is the financial hub and Malaysia is the technological hub in terms of semiconductors. When those guys top out and say like, okay, well, we've built all our stuff. We need cheap platforms, cheap places to build because our wages are getting too high to do all this stuff. They're going to go to Indonesia. You know, Malaysia is going to go to Indonesia because it's basically a very similar country. And Singapore is going to go to Indonesia because it's right there and they can invest in it and make a big return on capital, which is what they care about. So I think that I'm bullish on Indonesia. Meanwhile, all across the world, you've got East Europe, which could be an amazing technological cluster. The destiny of software, I think, is going to coalesce into three clusters. And those clusters will be the West Coast of the United States, India, especially the South and West of India, and East Europe, especially like the Baltics and Poland and Hungary and all the former Eastern Bloc countries. That is where software will be done, I think, in those three places. And I mean, there will be some software done everywhere, but that will be where the best software gets done the most. I don't know where Israel fits into that. It's obviously somewhere on the map, maybe in the East Europe cluster. And then in terms of electronics, I don't see a move out of Asia, but I do foresee that India could has the potential to capture a lot of the electronics industry from China. And at first, it won't be the high end. It won't be like all the super fancy schmancy robotics and semiconductor stuff that China's working on right now at its cutting edge. That it'll take India a while to get there. But I think that in terms of all the stuff that China was doing in 2005, during its fastest period of growth, India could do all that stuff. India can make batteries. It's not hard. Uh, and once you learn how to make batteries, maybe then you learn how to invent new batteries. And once you learn how to make batteries, then maybe you learn how to make electric cars, et cetera. And India could do all that today. India could do electronics assembly. That could be where we make all the laptops and all the phones. All the stuff China did 15 years ago, India could do today. And I'm hoping that that will happen. I think that there is impetus for that to happen. It depends a lot on the government's policies there. It depends a lot on whether companies can successfully convince themselves that India is a good place to invest. It's up in the air. I don't know if it'll happen. 
But if it happens, it's going to transform the face of the world and, uh, of course, the face of India. So I would really say that those are several different countries, and you can see my general thoughts on how these clustering effects might go. Well, that's fascinating. By the way, have you studied at all sort of the juxtaposition between adoption rate of digital technologies in developing countries versus adoption rate of industrial technologies? Sure. I mean, digital technologies get adopted much faster because they're more decentralized. For industrial technologies, you need things like roads and power plants, things that take a lot of capital that often are, have a public goods component so that you need the government to step in and build them. And that means you need the government not to be corrupt and wasteful, blah, blah, blah. For digital technologies, you just have some companies set up some cell phone towers. Now you have a cell phone, you're off to the races. And so we've seen, for example, cell phone adoption zoom way past the fixed broadband adoption in Africa, in India, in a lot of poorer places. It's, it's all cell phones, right? Now, some physical technologies are highly decentralized. And the best example of this is solar power. Because solar power, the cheapest solar power is if you build giant centralized solar farms and pipe electricity through high voltage lines out to wherever you need. But you can get pretty good solar just by putting it up in your backyard and a bunch of roofs. It's a very decentralized technology. It's like the opposite of nuclear power in some way. In terms of decentralization, it's like an internet for energy in some way. You can just build it wherever. You can build a factory out in the middle of Chad in the middle of nowhere, as long as you have enough, I guess, water, you can build a factory out in the middle of Chad, running on its own solar power, making some stuff, which you then might have to truck up to Morocco or somewhere, or Tunisia. But yeah, you could build with solar power, independent stuff. So it's not always digital technologies that are more decentralized than physical ones. Sometimes physical technologies can be very decentralized. I'd say that cell phones and solar power are the two big examples of highly decentralized technology that are going to lessen the disadvantage of states with low state capacity. China is an example of a state with very high state capacity. They can do everything from like building this giant road network to locking everyone indoors for COVID for months. They can do a lot of things. They can organize a lot of people. That gives them a big advantage over somewhere with low state capacity like Nigeria, right? Nigeria, it's really hard because of ethnic divisions, because of resource curse, because of a lot of things, it's really hard to get anyone to, to agree on it and to get anything done. And so now Nigeria is going to get a bonus from solar and cell phones because it's already getting the bonus from cell phones and will from solar because you don't have to have that well-working government at the center. I was actually recently looking at some of these stats, Noah. Cell phone subscriptions went from about zero to eight billion in 30 years time. That's Pretty amazing, absolutely mind-blowing. I think it's, mind -blowing. it's very, very interesting. To what extent are you surprised about the adoption of crypto or blockchain-based technologies in developing countries? Are you surprised that Bitcoin is not more prevalent in South America, Africa, other developing parts of the world? I mean, no. I think Bitcoin is, you know, mostly, mostly useless. And I'll tell you why. Because the storage costs are high for Bitcoin. And we don't think of a thing that exists in a database as having any storage cost at all. How much does it cost to store the data in my own Microsoft Excel spreadsheets of which television shows I'm going to watch or whatever? I just made that up. I don't actually have that sheet, but I probably should. But then like it costs nothing to store it. So does it cost anything to store Bitcoin? You can just have like a cold inert little wallet, physical wallet. And oh, it costs zero to store my Bitcoin. But Bitcoin as a network has storage costs, which are the costs of basically preventing the, the double spending attacks to maintain the integrity of the chain requires massive amounts of compute and that massive amounts of compute requires massive amounts of electricity. And so that maintaining the integrity of the chain is a storage cost. It's no different conceptually than storing all the gold in Fort Knox or whatever, right? In order to have this money, you need to pay this continuous cost. What's Interesting about Bitcoin is that for most valuable commodities, the storage cost only goes up slightly when the value increases. So if the price of gold doubles, that doesn't increase the physical requirements of guarding a, a building full of gold. It will increase it somewhat because thieves will increase their effort and try harder. There is some effort matching thing there. Whereas if gold goes up by 10 times in price, people think, wow, I could rob some gold. And so you'll get more 
people trying to rob Fort Knox or whatever. But most of the cost structure of guarding physical commodities and the fixed cost of having it in like a safe, maybe hiring some guards, whatever, it's in the upfront costs. It's not, it doesn't depend on the price much, only a little bit. Bitcoin, the more expensive Bitcoin gets, the more a Bitcoin is worth in terms of dollars or whatever, the more valuable a Bitcoin is in terms of real commodities or whatever you'd want to buy with it, pizza, I don't know, then the more compute and the more energy the network has to spend maintaining its integrity. So that means that Bitcoin's storage cost doesn't just scale with the amount of Bitcoin in circulation or the amount of Bitcoin that people are using or anything like that. Bitcoin storage cost scales with the value of Bitcoin. And that means that as more people adopt Bitcoin and push up its price, the amount of electricity that gets diverted into just keeping the network, not even doing transactions, but just keeping the network from dying, just the bailing out the canoe, right, to keep this thing afloat, increases. And in fact, it looks like it increases, if you look at the website DigEconomist, it looks like it increases more than one for one. So the, if you increase the price by of Bitcoin by, let's say, 10%, it looks like the electricity cost goes up by more than 10%. Definitely would yeah. want to understand that dynamic a bit closer. From my perspective, wouldn't that concept be abstracted away from a user? I mean, what user is really thinking about that? What median or average user, which doesn't really exist, but who really thinks about that stuff anyway, right? So it seems to me that that wouldn't Miners. really be a gating a consumer based in, let's say, Nigeria. Are they thinking about this stuff, you think? Or in Sweden no, but, or in the US? Miner, miners are. How does that, but then how would that impact the utility of a Bitcoin? The miner is, you know, no pun intended, only a minor consumer of of Bitcoin, right? Sure. But like you need the miners to actually do the transactions, to validate the transactions. To validate a transaction on a normal ledger and just like an Excel spreadsheet, all you need is a trusted intermediary to just sign a number over from one side of the ledger to the other. It's essentially costless. For Bitcoin, because it creates it, Bitcoin relies on distributed verification instead of trusted intermediary. For Bitcoin, every time you do a transaction, it requires the reestablishment of digital trust. Bitcoin destroys trust between every transaction. It just it tosses it away and requires you to create it again. Every time a block is verified, you need to recreate the trust of the entire network. That's very expensive trust. Whereas the trust that you place in Citibank is not very expensive. All you need is for Citibank to hire some cybersecurity people so you don't get identity thefted too much and some legal people. It's ultimately not that expensive to maintain the trust of the Citibank payments network. But for Bitcoin, it's very expensive because you have to keep reestablishing that trust, which just effervesces and vanishes every time. And so because of that, and miners are the people who do that and their electricity costs matter. The Bitcoin network is incredibly clunky as it is, right? And so that's why, I don't know what happened to that lightning network we were supposed to get, you know, but did that happen? It's just insanely difficult and long and expensive to send money via Bitcoin. So people use other things, off-chain transactions and wrapped Bitcoin and proof of stake things. Of course, proof of stake is much cheaper. Proof of stake is far, far cheaper. But if you're going to have proof of stake, why not just use Citibank? I don't get it. Ether's cool because it can do cool things, right? It can well, do- Citibank can confiscate your assets. That's what? City making confiscate your right. ass. So you have to believe that they will not. That's trust. Trusted intermediary. You have to trust them that they're not going to just take your money. We'll shift gears to measuring technology progress. And I guess one of the ways to measure technology progress is Kardashev scale. If you know of it, Kardashev, uh, of course, I know the Kardashev scale. The yeah. Kardashev scale is getting over its skis a little bit, right? It's like, how many galaxies can we devour? And you know, in the real, in real life, we're like, can I stop climate change? It's the Kardashev scale is a scale of the energy capture of civilization that is basically measured in extremely ridiculous Larry Niven-like sci-fi terms. <laughs> I forget the exact items on the scale, but it's like capture the entire, all the energy of a planet all the energy of a star, you know, <laughs> like these are the Kardashev levels and it is fun for inspiring us. Science fiction has always had the power to inspire us to do great things, to look up at the sky and dream about how great we might become. And that's important and powerful in terms of an actual skill that we'll ever use to measure anything within our lives. No, it is not useful. 
and not for technology progress. You and I will be at the same Kardashev level for our entire lives, even if life extension works. So it's not granular enough. It's not granular enough. That's exactly right. It's not granular enough. So there, you can make indices like the Kardashev scale, for example, the energy capture, how much of the planet's energy you harness. So that's something that we use to measure the technological progress of ancient civilizations, for example. So Ian Morris has an index of civilizational development, which has things like, of which energy capture is one of the main components. There's also urbanization and all kinds of other things like that. But you can do that. But I'm not sure if it necessarily makes sense because I would say that a lot of IT involved dematerialization so that we actually started using less energy. Yep. The value of technology doesn't scale with the resource consumption of technology. And when you ask me what's the ultimate technology that we could ever create, some people would say faster than light travel. That's not happening. AI, a godlike AGI, right? Maybe that'll happen. I don't know. But then I think maybe personality upload is the ultimate technology. Because once we can create virtual worlds, why do we need to spend all this energy moving around the real world? Why do we need to capture the energy of a sun when we can just have fun in our little imaginary worlds that we make for ourselves? Just play video games forever. And why why capture them? You can make, well, you could make more people. You could increase the population of these like uploaded personalities to trillions and trillions and trillions. But we don't necessarily have an innate desire to procreate. <laughs> like, why would we do that? I don't necessarily want to spam the galaxy with infinite of me maybe rabbits maybe i'll spam the galaxy with infinite bunnies we'll see we could argue about that all day but i think dematerialization could be important in fact i think the most extreme version of this is personality modification because if you can modify your personality to just enjoy what you have aren't you done why else would you build giant monuments and build jetpacks and whatever people would like there's nothing that you need once you just alter yourself such that you're pretty chill and doing all right. What else do you need in life? You're saying that the secrets to all or the answers to all questions lie within? Maybe. If you make the answers to all questions lie within, then they do, right? <laughs> you, um, imagine MDMA that you never came down from and that never wore off and that you never built up a tolerance to. You know, you're just like an ecstasy head forever. Okay, you'd have to drink a lot of water. Imagine that the hydration problem is also solved. And... You know, you just go around, you're like, yeah, man. Oh, wow. This microphone feels amazing. Oh, my God. Life is good. Maybe everyone would die of starvation because no one would work. But if we have the robots to tend to us and we can just like experience MDMA all the time forever. Yeah. Maybe we're done. What is the right way then, Noah, to measure velocity of technological progress? The fundamental thing that technology does is not progress in a certain direction. The fundamental thing that technology does is to make our world weirder and different. Technology weirds the world. What about life expectancy? You know, let's say that went up 20 years. Is that worth something? Maybe. Queen once sang, who wants to live forever when love must die? <laughs> so maybe a better, more important technology than life extension is love extension. Yeah, I yeah. think you're probably right. And how do you measure that then? How do you measure love <laughs> extension? <laughs> With the Coolidge effect. How many years of marriage can you have and still have sex all the time and enjoy it? Yeah, that's actually not a bad metric. You have a lot of wisdom here, my friend. No, this is actually very helpful. Thank you. I think we're going to talk a little about technology trends. Sachin. You alluded to some of this already, but which technology trend are you most excited about and why? Oh, I'm, I think I'm most excited about energy. I mean, AI is very cool. I love AI. But I think I'm even more excited about the combination of solar and batteries, with really batteries being the essential thing, because energy has never been this portable. The most portable form of energy we've ever had is petroleum products. You can take a little bit of kerosene, and that has a lot of energy in it. You take a little bit of kerosene, now you have a jet. Take it in your jet, you can fly. You take a little bit of gasoline, and now you can drive your car. And so that was very portable. But the thing was that there was a lot of machinery needed to extract that energy. So energy is portable now in a way it wasn't before. Compactly, lightly portable in a way that it wasn't before with batteries. You can make maybe a bunch of tiny little spider robots to wash off your solar panels or maybe a bunch of little construction bots to build a building while your people just slack off and sit there. Maybe we could have real technological progress in on-site 
physical construction for the first time ever, really, or the first time since the 50s. Maybe we could have, yeah, a bunch of robots just build like the world's biggest bridge, a bunch of little spider robots, or a bunch of little spider robots swarm and kill your enemies. I don't know. Watch out. So I think batteries are going to do a lot of stuff. They are going to enable the world to come alive in ways we have barely uh, predicted. In fact, I invested in a battery-powered appliance company called Impulse that basically is going to put batteries, fast discharge batteries in household appliances such that you can get electricity extremely cheaply from a regular outlet without any rewiring and then turn up very high power from the battery when you need to boil something or to dry your clothes real fast or whatever you want to do. So that's cool. Yeah. Robots everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> from your vantage point, looking at the cost curve of renewable energy storage, how do you see that playing out? Do you think we'll see what happened in the last decade, 15 years? Is it all plausible that same thing could happen in terms of cost per unit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one reason is not only... So there are basically two things that drive progress in batteries. And that's also solar, but in batteries... There's technological progress, there's technological discoveries, innovation, and then there's scaling. Learn how to make stuff cheaper by making a lot of it. We've got the scaling down, right? We're doing more and more scaling. And in the years ahead, when we build out the EV fleet in the world, we're going to see vast scaling beyond anything we've had before. And that's going to keep pushing costs down. At the same time, we've got everyone in the world racing to invent better batteries both in China and the US, those are the two main centers of battery research. And it just has to do with catching up in terms of cost. The performance is just much, much better and the cost isn't competitive yet because the lithium ion batteries are racing ahead. So in fact, once lithium ion batteries eventually hit a cost wall where we don't scale them anymore and they roll off their scaling curves and whatever, then we bring in the other batteries and say, okay, well, can we scale that? And then we might just get another more decades of the same. So that's pretty cool. You've got batteries whose energy density is like several times as good as the energy density we have now. I don't even remember, like 10 times. It's stuff that you could power an airplane off of. Airplanes or maybe a ship, although ships have another problem, which is corrosion. But an airplane, a train, battery-powered train. Of course, the downside to this is that then you get drones that can fly halfway across the world just to assassinate your enemy. And maybe like autonomous murder drones that stay in the field forever and just kill everybody for weeks. We'll have to deal with that. We'll have killer robots coming after us, but we'll also be able to have electric airplanes. And that's pretty cool. And we'll be able to have construction robots. And that's pretty cool. And we'll be able to have phones that last forever. And that's pretty cool. How about nuclear energy making any progress? I don't see much progress. They camp with small modular reactors, but we're already seeing massive cost overruns. It turns out they're not as cheap as we thought. We're seeing massive delays. It turns out that they're not as quick as we thought. And the upfront costs are still very substantial, even though they made it smaller, but it's still really big. It's like one fifth of what it used to be, but that's still big. And it's still hard to get the financing together for something like that. That's cool that they made the small modular reactors, but I don't really know if is that's that, going to make be a game changer. Is that more due to policy or is that the technology's limitation? Nuclear reactors are built on-site, even a modular reactor. And the thing about on-site construction is that it doesn't tend to have much of a learning curve. Its cost doesn't tend to go down much over time. Anything that can be built in a factory tends to have a learning curve. Anything that can not be built in a factory tends to have a very small learning curve or nothing, sometimes even a reverse learning curve. And so that's one reason why nuclear costs haven't gone down. Of course, safety requirements have added to the cost. But part of it, you know, people talk about regulation. A lot of the safety requirements, a lot of the safety costs of nuclear reactors are actually just engineers at those companies saying, oh, hey, we came up with a way to make it safer. Let's do it. They come up with, and then once you come up with a way to make something safer, the customer always wants it, right? The customer thinks, safer, Chernobyl, don't want that. So often it's just customer demand. You know, like the customers want safety. It's not even the regulators we're talking about. And they keep inventing new, incredibly expensive ways to make it safer. It's sort of like changes in medical technology. We just invented a new scan that'll increase your chances of cancer detection by 10%, but cost 30, 30 times more. Would you like it? Yes, I don't want cancer, <laughs> right? So you'll just shell out a lot of money. This is a big cost problem for nuclear power, along with the lack of cost curve and regulation. So there's a lot of 
headwinds for nuclear power. One of the biggest things that you might not think of when you think about cost problems for nuclear power is obsolescence risk. Nuclear power plant, you have to pay all the money up front in a really big dollop of cash. And then you make the money back over 30 years time. Solar and batteries and all these other energy technologies are progressing so damn fast that 30 years is completely unrecognizable. Like 30 years ago, 30 years before now was like 1993. In 1993, solar power made no sense economically. It was a non-starter. It was a gimmick. Well, no, actually, unless it was a satellite, right? On a satellite. That's a great point. That's exactly right. But it wasn't cost competitive at all on Earth with like fossil fuels. It was like 30x more expensive. It was just not anywhere close. And so it stayed in the lab for years and years and years and years and years until it got to the point where it was cost competitive in the 2010s. And so that took a very long time. If you look at nuclear plants, you have to be sure that nuclear is going to be able to make back its investment over 30 years which means you have to know that it'll still be the cheapest form of electricity in 30 years. Whereas solar, it might just be like, oh, just solar is just cheap as dirt. Just build solar anywhere. And then nuclear plant goes obsolete because you have to charge a rate on your nuclear electricity that's high enough not just to maintain operations, but also to pay back your fixed cost and the interest you promised. And if you don't do that, it wasn't a money-making venture and you lose and everyone knows that. So everyone knows that going into it which is why very few people finance nuclear plants, which is why almost all nuclear is financed by the government. And it's difficult to get the government to finance things. Sorry if that was disappointing, but I'm optimistic about fusion. Oh, you are? Why? Fusion? Well, but just because we're just getting started. We are constantly inventing like new ways to do fusion, like helion. That's neat. Who would have thought of that? A lot of things might be helped by AI and just applying computation to fusion because a lot of the... Th problems of fusion have to do with controlling things over very short periods of time, which require extremely fine control. And there's a lot of like feedback things you need to damp out. And so, of course, Helion is working on doing that to get these extremely accurate, highly timed pulses. And of course, National Ignition Facilities work on that. I don't know what like Commonwealth and General Fusion are doing really necessarily. But yeah, so fusion, we're just starting to plumb what we can do with that. And of course, fusion does have the same thing of it costs a hell of a lot to build up front and then you have to make your money back slowly. But in terms of obsolescence risk, it is such that, you know, there's, that if we get it working, the obsolescence risk is very low. It's hard to imagine solar and storage together that beat what fusion could provide. Fission, they can beat. Fusion, it would be very difficult to beat that if we got fusion to like a reasonable construction cost. So it's really up in the air. And I'm optimistic about fusion because we're getting past the technological barrier of net positive energy. We're getting toward the technological barrier of self-sustaining, at least at National Ignition Facility. The barrier of cost effectiveness, I think, will take us more to do. So I think for solar, we really saw it was 35 years that it took. So I would say that for fusion, people say that it's always 50 years away or something like that. I would say maybe this time it really is 50 years away. Five years away from being five years away. Right. I mean, then you never get there. But I think that with fusion, we've, we see a path to get there. Yeah. And so I'm optimistic about fusion. Also, fusion cannot really be used for nuclear proliferation. You can't make a hydrogen bomb out of a fusion reactor or the products of a fusion reactor. You could make water, but you can't really make a hydrogen bomb. You can make a nuclear bomb out of a fission reactor. I think really fusion is the energy of the future and we may never get it, but I think there's a good chance we will. And we can sort of, the path is becoming clearer. So let's postulate a hypothetical world that might not be hypothetical where the marginal cost of energy production approaches zero. What happens in a world like that? We go colonize space because at that point we can't, if that happens, then waste heat will make it impossible for us to stay on planet we'll need to go colonize space. And other planets will basically become bulky refrigerators for us. All right, let's talk about the, the Noah Smith production function, production process. So how the hell do you do what you do? What's the secret sauce, part one? Part two, what does a typical sort of week in your life look like? And then is the Noah Smith production function harmed or enhanced by AI? 
the Noah Smith production function is rabbit based. Basically, I get up, drink some tea, pet my rabbits, and write a blog post. And that's pretty much what how it works. And how do you decide what to write about? Whatever I am most annoyed about today. So I'm driven entirely by annoyance that, and the annoyance could be that people think the wrong thing, or the annoyance could be that people haven't thought of this thing yet. Like, how could you not have thought of this thing yet? It's not always annoyance driven. Sometimes it's just fun, right? Some posts are very fun. Like I wrote a post about AI called The Third Magic, which is, will AI go beyond science? And it was this very like stoned ass rant. And it was one of the more popular posts I've ever done. I love it. I enjoyed it and uh, people enjoyed it. And it was very just like, let's have fun writing a stoned rant. I wasn't stoned. You know, a lot of posts are just like, okay, so robots are not going to take our jobs. And here's why, God damn it. That's a very common motivation for me to write as well. But basically, I'm constantly tormented by the idea that I won't be able to write enough stuff and people will think wrong things about them. The thoughts will go unthought by the general public, that people will just think like AI is just going to replace humans, when in fact, I think it's more likely that AI just complements humans. And people think, oh, AI is going to reward all the super high IQ people who got rewarded by the like computer revolution and thinking, well, actually, AI may just reward normies, you know, because now normies can write just as well as you can. Level the playing field. Or, yeah, level the playing field. And so like when the computer can think for itself, why do we need these smarty pants humans who like went to the International Math Olympiad? Like, come on. Although, although actually computer, the AI can't do the Math Olympiad yet, but it can pass the LSAT. How will AI affect my production function? Well, this has been pretty frustrating for me because I've tried to use GPT-4 and whatnot to help write pieces of my articles and it consistently gets enough wrong where I have to spend more time checking it than I would just writing the damn thing myself. Hallucination is still a problem, but it's not just hallucination. It's also misinterpretation. Like really, it'll take a misinterpretation and just run with it. AI definitely reminds me of an undergrad, a smart undergrad. You get a smart undergrad to write your blog, they're going to write bullshit. And when you call them on it, they're going to be like, blah, 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 as, as GPT-4 does. Anyway, it hasn't been useful. And when I ask it for summaries of things, it'll get things wrong enough where I have to edit it a lot. So I haven't been able to use it in writing yet. Although I'm still trying to experiment and play around, maybe there'll be a way that I can use it in writing. Or maybe someday with reinforcement learning from human feedback, with domain expertise and all these things, maybe it'll get better. And maybe we can just train the AI on me specifically so that it can produce my characteristic style better. Because whenever you ask it, write something in the style of Noah Smith, it never does a good job. He can write stuff in the style of Dr. Seuss, but not in the style of Noah Smith. And so maybe I'm not distinctive enough, but I like to think that maybe there's just not enough of my stuff out there. So it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. But when, ev when it eventually happens, when I'm able to use AI to write, I will love that because I will be able to write so much more than I currently do. I will be able to have specialized sections where I will be able to write, take 10 news items in a day and give you a super high level analysis of exactly what each of those means for the world and you and your career. No opinion will conquer the world with the help of AI someday. <laughs> Good stuff. No opinion bot. Helps. No opinion bot. It's Helps coming. Fun. Actually, at the, um, at the Museum of Misalignment in San Francisco, they briefly did have a no opinion bot. Cool. We'll move on to our outro section. I'll start with the first one. What motivates you? What motivates me? Petting rabbits. Help the rabbits, bunnies. I, I would like to create a more reasonable world. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? That's hard to say because I don't necessarily know what the consensus is. But we talked about one, which is that I think that AI will complement humans more than it will substitute them. Whereas I think almost everyone is incapable of thinking of AI's effect on labor markets not in terms of replacing people. So I think that's one. I think that, oh, I don't know what's a non-consensus non view. The Bitcoin is useless is probably one. <laughs> no, I think I think most people probably, I mean, like almost no one uses Bitcoins. So I think even most of the people who have it probably just, including me, I have Bitcoin, <laughs> but I just have it in case there's a big bubble and I can sell it for more than I bought it. It's a gamble on the bubble value of Bitcoin. I think that technology solves lots of problems and People like to tell themselves that technology doesn't solve problems because that will make them feel, then they can reduce the status of tech bros in their own mind and raise the status of, I don't know, snarky humanities dudes online. But I think technology solves a lot of problems. I think during COVID, people are like, tech won't save us. Tech won't save us from the pandemic. And like, what? Yeah, it will. 
It did. Like what you call mRNA vaccines. You know, and not only that, when you were in lockdown in 2020, tech was how you like bought everything online and did everything online and stayed sane and kept in touch with your friends instead of just like going absolutely nuts. Tech absolutely will and did save you. You know, that's people are way too, even if I think Bitcoin's useless, I think most technology is highly non-useless. Yeah, people discount that. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? What or who has had the most impact on my career, thinking, or life? I would say clinical depression. Clinical depression made me the interesting, unique person I am today. If not for depression, I would just be like a normal bro. Wow. I wish that was not in the rapid fire section. That'd be really interesting to dive yeah. into. Next um, time. I wrote a post on it. What are you currently reading? I'm reading some books about India by V.S. Naipaul. I am reading a book about recent Japanese history. I am reading, what else am I reading? Those are the two books that I'm reading now because one's an audiobook and one is a paper. But then I'm going to read stuff about China's surveillance state and then some new science fiction things. I just read Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. I'm going to read, I'm just on a paper books about Japan sort of kick. So I'm going to read more about Japanese industrial policy, I think, back in the day. Yeah. And so what else am I going to read? Yeah, that's what I'm sorry. Oh, and then I, that I have a whole reading series to do about World War II industrial policy and mobilization. I've read a couple of books there, but I have five left. And so at some point I'm going to pick that up and do it again. Last but not the least, who are your favorite writers or podcasters? Oh man, too many to say. In terms of my favorite bloggers, Brad DeLong, my podcast co-host, is definitely one of my favorite bloggers. Let's see. Hannah Ritchie writes a really amazing climate-related blog. Faster Please by Jim Petakoukis is one of my favorite aggregators and blogs about technology. Oh man, there's a lot. I like Matt Iglesias is good for politics. I mean, I don't always agree with him, but I think he's my favorite kind of political analyst. David Roberts is another really, really good climate and climate tech sort of writer. Jerusalem Demsas is amazing for urban issues, housing, Yimby stuff. Derek Thompson is one of the best. He's just He just can write about anything. Ezra Klein, of course, is great. Ezra Klein and Derek Thompson are working on a book together. But I think that trinity of Ezra Klein, Derek Thompson, and Jerusalem Demsas, those are the abundance writers. Those are the people pushing forward the conversation on abundance, which is something I'm really, really interested in. And podcasters, Odd Lots is my favorite podcast by far. That is the really the only podcast that I would regularly listen to is Odd Lots. They're really good. I'm trying to think of other podcasts. I'm not a big podcast guy. I'm a really big audiobook guy, and that just crowds out podcasts. I am as well. So, so uh, Noah, when we asked Kevin Kelly this question, he answered Noah Smith. And it's so great that yeah. we actually have you on the podcast now because it's full circle. And I, shame on me, did not know who you were at that point in time. This is two years ago. And as a result of that, we have you on now. But I thought you would say Kevin Kelly simply because you also interviewed him recently. Oh, I love um, Kevin Kelly. I, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking of bloggers. Kevin Kelly doesn't write a lot of articles. Yeah. He'll write yeah, one. Sure. When you're talking about authors in terms of books, there's a whole nother huge list. But Kevin Kelly is definitely in there. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.